Today's scripture is from Exodus 14, 5 through 22. Read along with me, please. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We have let the Israelites go and lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt, with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Pi-Hahirath, opposite Baal-Zephon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, leave us, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, will never, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. <clears throat> the, pillar of <clears throat> the pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other side, so neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. Please pray with me. Father, um, we come to you just grateful that we um, have the ability to worship you together. Thank you for bringing us all here. And we pray that you would be with Alan as he um, preaches your word. We pray that you would speak through him and speak truth to us. We pray that that truth would... Um, would enter our hearts and would bury down deep, that we would remember it through this week. And we pray that you would just um, bless us with your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Okay, we are uh, continuing on in our new series through the book of Exodus, uh, looking at uh, the theme of learning to be free. Because... You see, what the book of Exodus is all about is the freedom 
from slavery in Egypt that God brought about for the Israelites. See, they were slaves for 430 years, and God miraculously delivered them from that bondage with these uh, 10 plagues that we didn't read about yet, but, uh, and, and then, of course, the parting of the Red Sea. And, and yet what we see throughout all the rest of the book is that even though they are now physically free from their slavery, they are not yet spiritually free, not in their hearts. Their, their slavery uh, chains them uh, to uh, all sorts of um, idolatries that are in their heart, and it's holding them back. And of course, as we noted last week, uh, the New Testament is filled with all sorts of imagery of how our spiritual salvation from sin is referenced time and time again as being depicted for us in this particular story. That is, their slavery from their bondage is merely a picture of the spiritual slavery that we all have to sin. And of course, our rescue from um, our bondage to sin uh, through the life and the death of Jesus. And of course, the similarities will continue on because even though a person can be a genuine believer in Christ who has been rescued from their sin, you've been completely delivered from it, uh, saved by the life and death of Jesus, you can still have all sorts of areas of your life where that freedom is simply not real to you yet. It, it's theoretical. It's, uh, it's theological, maybe. It's generic. And it hasn't freed me from my bondage in that particular area, not yet. And so what we're doing is we are trying to embark on a journey with these Israelites through their wilderness wanderings, asking ourselves the very same question that God was in the midst of teaching them. And that is, now that you're free, how can we learn to act like we're free? How can we live like we're free? How can we learn to live out of the wealth of the new freedoms that we already have in Christ. And so today we're going to be looking at how God has made provision for us to be freed from our fears. That's what we're specifically looking at today. One of our greatest enemies, uh, our deepest fears in life. Because just like these wandering people, though we've been delivered by the sheer grace of God through the blood of the Lamb, we too still often find ourselves living in the wilderness. And we get lost and we get confused, and we're afraid. And we need to learn how to hang on to the hope that God will bring us safely to the promised land. And so let's look at the basic argument that drives our fears, the, the essential lie that grips our hearts with its powerful distractions and distortions. And, and, and the heart of what drives our fears, I think, is what we see evidenced by the argument here from despair on the part of these people. This is the, the woe is me argument that we're all very familiar with, right? Whatever it is that's in front of us, no matter what it might be, we're just convinced that it's too much, there's no way out, it's impossible, and we're totally screwed here. We just, we're up against it. And so we start to panic in fear. See, we can say that we trust in God, and, and most of the time we probably do, but it's when circumstances turn ugly and the clouds of gloom begin to descend. Most of us are very quick to jump on the panic train and start believing all sorts of lies of despair. And from a human point of view, it's perfectly understandable why these guys were, were so freaked out. You know, after 430 years of slavery and crying out to God for deliverance, God miraculously opens 
the door through the devastation of these ten plagues. And Pharaoh gives in and he says, I've had enough of you people. Get out of here. You're free to go. In fact, the Egyptians were so glad to see them go by that point, they were throwing all their worldly goods at them, saying, just take them and get out of here. We've had enough. But then God does something very, very strange and very counterintuitive. Because rather than taking them on the expressway to the shortest and fastest way out of Egypt to the promised land, he takes them on a very sharp right turn into the desert where they eventually run into the barrier of the Red Sea. Now, I'm sure Pharaoh and his advisors were, at this point, beginning to count up uh, the gross national product of Egypt and began to realize what both Apple and Nike have figured out, and that is you can't make any money without free slave labor. And, and so they began wondering whether it was really worth it or not, going after these guys. Should we bring them back? Should we be doing this stuff? But when they saw the direction that they went, you know, these, these idiot slaves, they don't even know how to navigate, right? They're completely lost in the desert. And now they just boxed themselves in at the most vulnerable, vulnerable place they could have stumbled into. And so the decision became very easy because now these guys are easy pickings, right? Let's go after them and bring them back. They won't even be able to put up a fight. And so Pharaoh sent his vast army with 600 of his best chariots. I always wondered about that word, along with all the others. It makes me wonder what the less than best chariots were. The 1968 Rambler version of chariot, I guess. But I'm sure whatever those lesser ones were, they were far better than the no chariots the Israelites had. And then we're also told he sent all of his troops, his, his, his horsemen, his cavalry. It was a vast army. And of course, the people are terrified, right? Because we, we can't outrun the chariots. And we can't hide because we're in the open desert. And, and we can't slip away because we're hemmed in by the Red Sea behind us. And we've got absolutely no military experience. We are in trouble. And there's no way out. And so we see in verse 10 that the people are terrified and they're crying out and they're afraid. And I want you to notice the reactions to their dire circumstances. First, they begin to freak out emotionally. <clears throat> Verse 11, they said to Moses, was it because there was no graves in Egypt that you brought us in the desert to die? Even though they were the ones who had cried out to God for deliverance, right? They were the ones who happily took all the booty from Egypt and hightailed it out of there. But their <clears throat> emotions are irrational. And they start believing the lies of, well, we didn't really want to come out here. I mean, this was all your idea, Moses, which was not true. But then secondly, notice the lies of bitterness that creep in. <clears throat> Next verse, verse 12. Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone? Let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Now, if you go back and read the story, you'll see that nobody ever said anything like that, right? In fact, just the opposite was true. Because they were the ones who were complaining to God that you need to get us out of here. And, and listen, this, <clears throat> this kind of revisionist history that, that, our, that our hearts start to form in these moments when we feel stressed and overwhelmed creates lies, it creates distortions of the truth, I, I think in many ways to help protect ourselves from the pain of what we're facing. I mean, think about this. <clears throat> Maybe I'm just confessing too much here, but I, I think we all tend to do this with our spouse from time to time. 
when some argument comes up between you and your spouse about who was right and who was wrong, it's very common for us to argue not against what they said, but against what we chose to hear them say. And then we argue as if somehow that's actually what they said. Listen, when it comes to dealing with the stress of seemingly overwhelming circumstances, we naturally start spinning the truth in order to protect ourselves. It's your fault. I never thought this was a good idea, right? If I knew we we were going to take a risk like this and everything was going to fall apart, I, I wouldn't have followed you, right? And the fears of our hearts create lies that seem to be awfully true to us in the moment. And we have to ask ourselves, why, why did they do that? And, and why do we do that, right? Because we, as we said earlier, I think the reason is it's a lot easier to take a person physically out of slavery than it is to take the slavery out of a person. You see, this is really the language of addiction here, the language of bondage. And you start making excuses for why being back in bondage is actually better. And see, at times like this, what we tell ourselves is, I mean, sure, there, there were downsides to being in that addiction, in that slavery, but it was, it was safer than being exposed like this. Because freedom, in many ways, is even harder. I mean, I know it wasn't always pretty back there, but at least it was predictable, Right? And so here's, I think, the heart of the question that we're wrestling with. Is it better to be free but still in potential danger? Or is it better to be out of danger but not free? And you see, we do this all of the time. We run back to slavery, often even knowing and admitting that it's slavery. But at least it's familiar and it's safe because it's what I'm used to. And you see, this is where a Christian can say things like... I know pornography is wrong. I know it objectifies women. I know it funds the sex slave trade. I know it's not good for me. I'll even admit that I'm addicted to it. And I can't stop, but I don't want to because it's better than to have nothing. It's what drives a person to say, I know money can't buy happiness, but I mean, a little more couldn't hurt, right? And, And even though I know from experience and I know from statistics that I won't be any happier if I have more money, it gives me a sense of security And having that security is better than feeling insecure. Listen, this is the very dynamic that drives some women back into the arms of their abusive husbands because they say, I mean, I know it's bad, but but he means well. And, And it gives me a place of security. I mean, in general, he takes good care of me. Uh, and I'll be able to change him over time. See, it's the lie that security is better than freedom. It's the lie that it's just too dangerous out there. I'm too afraid of what might happen out there. Who knows what could happen? At least back there, I know what it's going to be like, and I can live with that, because I have. And so you start to remember only the good things from your slavery, from your addiction. I mean, as the Israelites often said, at least we had leeks and onions back there to eat, right? At least we didn't have an army bearing down on us. At least we were not this vulnerable, so it's better to go back. Listen, this is what drives people to say, I know that sex outside of marriage is wrong, but I'm lonely and so it's worth it. Because I'd rather deal with the shame of cheating than with the fears that I'll never be loved. 
Or I know that my family and my career should not be all-consuming, but I'd rather be in bondage to something like that and feel safe and secure than to free, feel free and vulnerable. <clears throat> Listen, it doesn't matter who you are. We all have arguments from despair that cloud our judgment and open us to dangers that can kill us. And so we think that we're free, but we're still in bondage. <clears throat> you know, I'll be honest. I'm just myself working on getting over an addiction to McDonald's frappes, mocha frappes. I don't like the caramel ones. Uh, and, and even though I knew that all that sugar was bad for me and it could open me to diabetes or even cancer, I mean, who knows what they put in those things? They crack cocaine, I think. And listen, I, I was able to justify this because I was able to tell myself, hey, I'm still losing weight on a frappe diet. In fact, I called, told my wife, this is my frappe diet. I'm still losing weight. It's okay. It can't be all bad. And, and listen, my head still tells me every day, hey, you know, those things were actually good for you. They, they kept you sharp and awake in the afternoon, right? And, and your doctor, last time you went, said your blood sugar was fine, so don't worry about it. Listen, it still draws me back with its lies that are stupid and illogical, but very easy to rationalize. Okay, so that's, I think, the primary way that fears enslave us. <clears throat> the, the twisted lies that it's actually better back in slavery. It's safer. It's, it's more predictable. I know I can handle that. And they're lies that our hearts just naturally want to believe because we're so afraid of the unknown out there. So let's next move on to ask, <clears throat> okay, why couldn't these guys help themselves? Why was their addiction that bad? Why, why can't we help ourselves and our addictions? Why are we drawn back even when we can acknowledge it's stupid and it's irrational? And, and the simple answer is they simply didn't have the courage to be free. And neither do we. We are spiritually cowards. <laughs> Listen, think about this. Why did God intentionally lead these people into the most vulnerable and exposed position imaginable. I mean, if he's powerful enough to bring about these 10 plagues to just overwhelm the greatest nation on the face of the earth, he's certainly powerful enough to protect his people from falling into such overwhelming circumstances. I mean, a God this powerful is a pretty good navigator. He knew where he was taking them, and yet he intentionally leads them there on purpose. <laughs> Why? Why? Because I think he's trying to expose the slavery that still exists in their hearts. And freeing them from that deeper slavery was far more important than keeping them physically secure. And listen, I think we really need to, to, to hang on to this, this principle here. That God is far more interested in freeing you from all the junk that's holding you back than he is in giving you a nice, safe, comfy life. Because though God can make your day easy and smooth. God could, like that, take away all of your problems. He's certainly capable of it. It will not do anything to, do, to deal with the deeper addiction that we all have to needing everything to be smooth and easy. And God wants you to be free from that. He doesn't want you to need those things. <clears throat> and so what God is exposing here in these people and in us is that everybody is enslaved to something. Nobody is free from everything. It's simply the way God created us. We were designed to, to worship and to find glory and value in something, and we, we simply can't escape it. And so the question becomes, <clears throat> why should I exchange my safe 
predictable slavery to whatever, family, sex, success, being loved, uh, being approved of. Why should I exchange what's safe and comfortable for a slavery to God who's wild and unpredictable? See, that's the question I think that we're all faced with each day. Why should I do it? How is that any better? And I think God answers that question for us by revealing four aspects of his character in verses 13 and 14. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid, stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you. The Egyptians you see today, you'll never see again. The Lord will fight for you, you need only be still. See, God says to his people, first of all, that God is the one who dispels fear. So don't be afraid, I'm in charge of this. Secondly, God is the one who delivers you from distress. Thirdly, he says, just be still and let God do the fighting for you. And then the last thing he says is that God removes all the danger from the dangers of this life. Now, think about it. Why would God answer his people like this rather than address their accusations? Why doesn't he answer any of their complaints? Because they think he's not dealing with their lame excuses. He's addressing the heart underneath. And what he's telling them is, guys, you're still addicted to an overly rosy picture of your past. You're still looking back on the good old days, and it's a lie they were never that good. You're simply addicted to memories. You know, it's like, you know, when we're in our 20s, we look back on our teens and we say, man, what an idiot I was as a teenager. And in your 30s, you look back on your 20s and you say, what an idiot I was in my 20s. In your 40s, you look back on your 30s and you say, what an idiot I was in my 30s. You're always an idiot. It never goes away. And and we are addicted to the memory that something that existed in the past was so much better. And what he's saying here is do not let yourself be bound to something that will enslave you and kill you. Rather, enslave yourself to something that will actually be enough to free you from your fears. That will free you from your need to be in control. That will free you from having to manage everything so that your life doesn't fall apart. Listen, that's exhausting. Have you not figured that out yet? It is exhausting. And God says, let me free you from that. As he often does, nobody puts this better for us than C.S. Lewis, who says, in speaking of this desire, I feel a certain shyness. I'm almost committing an indecency. I'm trying to rip open the inconsolable secret in each one of you, the secret which hurts so much that you take your revenge on it by calling it names like nostalgia or romanticism or adolescence. The secret also which pierces with such sweetness that when in very intimate conversation the mention of it becomes imminent, we grow awkward and affect to laugh at ourselves. The secret we cannot hide and cannot tell, though we desire to do both. We cannot tell it because it's a desire for something that has never actually appeared in our experience. We cannot cannot hide it because our experience is constantly suggesting it. And we betray ourselves like lovers at the mention of a name. Our commonest expedient is to call it beauty and behave as if that had settled the matter. Wordsworth's expedient was to identify it with certain moments in his own past. But all this is a cheat. If Wordsworth had gone back to those moments in the past, he would have not found the thing itself, but only the reminder of it. And what he remembered would turn out, thank you, itself to be a remembering. The the books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them, it only came through them. And what came through them was longing. 
these things, the, the beauty, the memory of our own past are all good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the real thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. And you see, God is telling us here, <clears throat> guys, you're going to be enslaved to something. And if that something is not me, it's going to fill you with fear because you might not get it, right? And even if you do get it, you might lose it. And that's going to fill you with exhaustion. Because listen, if you're looking to anything besides God, you can't ever quit. You need to work hard to keep it up. And that will fill you with despair. Because it never really satisfies, right? It's always just around the corner. And that will fill you with hopelessness. Because in the end, nothing works. Nothing satisfies. And you know, maybe it's me, maybe it's God, maybe it's just life. But I, I give up. I quit. Listen, as C.S. Lewis said, it's just part of human nature to look at our past through rose-colored glasses and to see it as better and sweeter and safer and more happy than it actually was. Even as a believer, we all have things that call us back to them, from porn to people-pleasing to the safety of things to mocha frappes, right? <clears throat> things that echo a tune in your heart that sing, if you have me, it's going to be enough. If you have me, you'll be satisfied. If you can just get me, you will finally have arrived. But it is a lie. It's only the echo of a deeper tune that God placed in your heart to find your joy in him. And so what God is challenging us to here is he's saying, listen, guys, you can either serve God be a slave to God and know that you are loved and accepted based on the finished work of your brother Jesus who lived and died in your place. Or you can serve the voices of the past in hopes that maybe this time they can give you what they've never been able to give you in the past. And that's pretty stupid. But you got to choose. You, you, you can't serve both. I mean, think about the kind of freedom that enslaving yourself to Jesus can actually bring. You know, when some relationship doesn't work out, it doesn't crush you because you still have Jesus. When you start <clears throat> gaining weight, you won't fall to pieces and beat yourself up because you still have Jesus. When, when your family is in chaos, you still have the stability of his love. When your job falls apart, you won't freak out because you still have the stability of him. And when you've got that, now you're truly free. Because you don't need Jesus plus anything. You don't need Jesus plus a secure job. You don't need Jesus plus obedient kids. You don't need Jesus plus a mocha frappe. All you need is Jesus. And when you come to see that, now you're finally free. And that's what God is after in us here. So how do we get it? How do we get this? How can we bring the enslavement that we were designed for in place of the prisons everything else throws us into. And, and I think here's where we need to counter the argument of despair with the argument of hope, the, the argument of the gospel. Because again, I want you to stop and think about what God is doing here. He, he promised that he would deliver his people from slavery. He heard their cries, get us out of here. And he comes with great miraculous power 
to display signs and wonders in Egypt, the likes of which nobody had ever seen before. I mean, it was amazing. It was powerful. There were fireworks everywhere, frogs covering the ground and locusts eating all the crops and the river turning to blood and the death of all the firstborn sons. It was, it was an amazing display of power. And how does God move next? He intentionally boxes them in in the most risky and vulnerable and scary scenario you could possibly imagine on purpose. Again, why? Because being rescued from their inner slavery of needing their lives to go the way that they wanted was still at work in their hearts. And in his love, God was far more interested in bringing the deeper rescue of needing their circumstances to all work out and to be able to trust God in his goodness so that they could go out in the world now and we could face anything without being afraid anymore. I mean, think about this. The very same God with a, who with a flick of his finger could part the Red Sea and walk his people through on dry ground is the very same God who put them in that impossible situation in the first place. I mean, let that sink in. The God who had the power to destroy the Egyptians with a mere breath intentionally placed his people in a situation that was overwhelming and impossible and stressful and brought them to their knees. Were they safe? Absolutely. Did they feel safe? No way, right? And yet we're told this is a picture of the very pattern that God uses to deal with each one of us every day. He is constantly leading us into situations that feel overwhelming and impossible. Why? Well, as we see here, it's to strip us of our fears and to build our trust that what we can't handle, God can. And he's not going to quit until we learn that lesson. God knows that the freedom that he has secured for us isn't that real to us, not yet. And so he constantly places us in situations that reveal our deep addiction to comfort and control and security and and he reveals it to us so he can strip it away and drive our hearts deeply into a trust that God is always good and always faithful and always trustworthy all the time. And when we can believe that, we're truly free. <clears throat> do you see that this is what God is doing in your life? Or all you see is just a bunch of ups and downs and good days and bad days. Do you see God at work? Yeah, he doesn't always make our problems go away, does he? In fact, at, at times it appears that he intentionally brings trouble into your life. And he lets everything look like it's going to fall apart. See, and, and when that happens, your heart is going to tell you it's because God isn't good. It's because God doesn't care. Or maybe it's because I've, I've made God mad at me somehow and now I've got to pay for my sins. And your heart's going to tell you that as bad as it was, the old things that I was chasing, at least it was familiar. At least it felt safe and predictable. At least I felt like I had some level of control over my life with this God. He's a wild lion. Who knows what he's going to do in my life? Who knows where he's going to take me? And God is intentionally bringing things into your life that are way beyond your ability to control or manage because he loves you enough to say, hey, it's time we dealt with that bondage. I want you to experience even more freedom in your life. Just imagine how much more freedom you would have if you didn't need life to go the way you wanted to. Just imagine how free you would be if nothing you faced was able to knock you over. 
Just imagine how restful and peaceful life would be if you truly believed that God is good and he's working everything for that good in my life. I wouldn't stress out about anything. Just imagine that kind of freedom. And see, God says, that's, that's what I'm doing here. And that's what I do in your life. Now, I find it fascinating that after God gave his people a reminder of these four attributes of his character in this great short little sermon by Moses, as great as it was, were they convinced by Moses' sermon? Of course not, right? The, the, the huge army was still out there. They were still trapped. Uh, there was still no way out. And, and listen, I know you know what this feels like. The, the word of God tells you not to be afraid. It tells you that he's in control. It tells you that he's working everything for your good. It tells you that he knows what he's doing. And you know it and you believe it. But the noise coming from that army out there is deafening right now. And it's all you can hear. And those rumbling chariots are all you can think about. And that forbidden relationship looks so much sweeter. Your ability to protect yourself with a financial hedge around you feels so much safer than this risky God. Pleasing people and being loved feels so much more fulfilling. And see, you, you, can, you can say, I, I love God's promises of rescue here, but the pain of my heart is just too great to hang on to these nice but kind of empty promises right now. And see, you can hear all the arguments you want about the goodness and faithfulness of God, but the reality of your circumstances is always going to overwhelm your rational logic every time. Unless, unless what? Unless you're rescued and rescued again and again and again. See, we've, we've all been rescued by the life and death of Jesus, just like they were all rescued out of Egypt. And if we put our trust in him, that is true of us. But like these people, you need to be delivered again. See, you saw the miracle of deliverance once. And now you need to see it again and again and again. We all do. Listen, we cannot live the Christian life on the fumes of the past. No matter how miraculous and amazing that they were, we need fresh grace. We need fresh reminders of his present goodness every day. And, and where do we see that here in our story? Because it, I mean, it does look pretty hopeless. How in the world are they going to be able to get out of this situation? And we see that hope coming in verse 19 in the angel of the Lord, where we're told the angel of the Lord moved from leading them to moving behind them now to protect them. And as we talked a little bit about this last week, this mysterious presence of this angel of the Lord is something that shows up often in scripture. This angel shows up to wrestle with Jacob. This angel of the Lord shows up to have dinner with Abraham. <laughs> Uh, this angel of the Lord is the one who leads them all through the wilderness for these 40 years. But here, this angel, who is Jesus himself, this angel places himself between the Egyptians and the Israelites. And he comes between that which would hurt them and their protection. And he stands firm for them. Even while they're freaking out, even while they are abandoning him, he will not let the Egyptians kill them. And he won't move. He won't quit on them in spite of all their foolish accusations against him. Listen, the Bible tells us that this is a picture of God's provision for us because the angel of the Lord is Jesus himself picturing for them and picturing for us the ultimate rescue that was still yet to come. When Jesus would stand between us and death, protecting us from the darkness 
and shining his light of grace upon us. But the reality was more than just a picture here. Jesus didn't just stand between us and death, which would have been great enough, because, listen, our plight is actually worse than the fact that our, our death is over there on the other side. Our death is in here. We're told that death is resident within us. It's not just out there in our circumstances. And so how can God rescue us from the darkness that actually lives within us without killing us? Only through Jesus. Only through Jesus. Jesus had to become one of us. And then he had to die for us in order to rescue us from our own darkness. But listen, as we move our way through the rest of the stories in Exodus, we're going to see the all-too-familiar story that the fears of the people kept coming back. But we know the end of the story. We know that Jesus died once for all, that all of our fears could be taken away. And, and that, you see, that's why we gather for worship every week. That's why we encourage you to read your Bible every day. That's why we want to see you in community with other people. That's why we take communion every week, because what you know about God's faithfulness and his goodness needs to be remembered, because we're forgetters and we're panickers, and it needs to be made real to your heart over and over and over again, because you are free if you're in Christ, but you need to experience that freedom over again each day. Listen, God is telling us here that you need to look at the things that enslave you today and say to it, I will not get my security from you because you would never die for me. In fact, the reality is you constantly ask me to die for you. But my Jesus died for me. And that frees me from needing you anymore. That frees me from my fears. Because if he died to rescue me from the ultimate darkness of death, then I can know that he's going to use every ounce of darkness and pain and struggle that I'm going to face today to strip me of my deepest fears and build within me a growing trust in his goodness that will enable me to stand in the midst of any storm he brings my way and trust him that he's good, that he's going to be faithful, that he's going to show up and I can count on it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we need to have that kind of trust built within us because we know the fears. We live them every day. Our lives are a constant panic of, oh no, what about this? We can look back and say, God was faithful yesterday, but what about today? What about tomorrow? And we forget and we accuse and we blame and we justify our reactions uh, to do all sorts of things rather than to trust you. And I pray, Lord, that you would be faithful to work within us the freedom that we have so that we can experience, enjoy, and live out of the wealth of the freedom that is ours and that we wouldn't act as if somehow we're still in slavery to things that have no control over us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.